Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. I guess you could say it's the view of the real. Welcome everybody to AM Byte. And as you can see, it's a special show. Uh, as of this recording, I am back in my homeland of Portugal, visiting family, having some entheogen experience and other mysticism. So I thought I'd do the intro of this show. Uh, here I am, this is the Ginchu Beach. It's eight o'clock and it's still quite a few people. Back there is the Sintra Mountains, a very mystical place, as some of you may know, full of portals. So, uh, yeah, I'll hope to share more about my experience here in the ancient Mediterranean land of the Knights Templar and portals and so much more. But anyway, uh, this show will be a presentation or a public replay of the Finding Hermes Gnostic Healing Spirituality and Praxis. Uh, we had the honor of uh, hosting Christopher Bjergnis. I hope I'm saying his name right, but probably not. And uh, he uh, he originally was on the show a few months ago for, for this uh, interview on Dark Gnosticism and Kabbalah. It was a very successful show. And he wanted to uh, show, do a more visual presentation to present, uh, to display his ideas and so forth. And it was very electric, very intense. So that's what we'll have today. Dark Gnosticism and Kabbalah part two. If you are into both of them, you may not like what you're gonna see. Uh, if you are into the Abrahamic dispensations, you may not gonna like what you see either. But uh, what can I say? This is the virtual Alexandria or the non-virtual world. And it's all about exchange of ideas. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of Chris's ideas, but again, I feel it should be uh, always open for an exchange of ideas and just let it rip and see what people uh, think and they can make up their own mind. As I mentioned in the first show, a first interview, Chris and I certainly think this is an elite problem. Nothing has nothing to do with people or anything like that. It's just uh, the Archon divide and conquer elite establishment bullshit. Merda, as we say here in Portugal. For non-subs, you'll get about an hour of Christopher's presentation, both in audio and video. And for all subs, Patreon, Red Circle, AB Prime, you're gonna get almost two hours of data that will definitely challenge you and expand your consciousness. So I hope you enjoy. I hope I know this vlogging stuff live is new to me. So please be patient. And again, uh, I hope the audio and everything comes out. But what are you gonna do? Other than that, please support to become a member of the Finding Hermes program, where we have monthly meetings, monthly presentations, and you get a whole bunch of other cool features and so forth. Regardless, thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy what you are about to see. For those about to rock dark Gnosticism in Kabbalah, we salute you. Thanks for being here, and both the Sintra and the Ginchu Beach and Portugal welcomes you to your own desert of the real. Thank you.
Well, welcome everybody to the Finding Hermes Praxis Ritual and Healing. And it is an honor to have Christopher Christopher Bjornes back, this time to give us a visual tour of his book, Beware the World to Come. Christopher, thank you very much. Thank you so very much for having me. And thank you for all of the guests who are also participating in the discussion. I appreciate it very much. Uh, pleasure is all ours, and it should be a great one. Well, without further ado, why don't you take over the screen? Okay, so we're going to be discussing my book, Beware the World to Come. It is available at my website, cjbbooks.com. And the main thesis of the book is that Jesus Christ is a mythical figure who was created in order to play the role of Satan as the required figure in Judaism to accomplish many satanic roles to fulfill what they needed to achieve at the changing of the ages from Aries to Pisces. Uh, the book also addresses the dualism which pervades throughout Gnosticism, Christianity, and Judaism, and it addresses how that dualism manifests itself as a war between Israelites and non-Israelites in the two opposing sides. And I break down how Judaism uh, creates the concept that there are two distinct universes based upon the ancient mythology that there is a universe of chaos, which is formless, emptiness, and darkness. And there is a universe of light, which emanates from a meta god. And in Kabbalah, this evolved into the concept that the meta god contracted itself so that this uh, chaotic world could be enclosed within a vessel. And then the meta god interjected its bright light into that vessel to start to create order and goodness within the darkness and evil of chaos. And in Gnosticism, this is also a similar emanation theory which predates Kabbalah. Kabbalah is largely derived from Gnosticism and Neoplatonism. And in Gnosticism, it also takes on that Platonic idea that the one, the monad, um, emanates light into the darkness of chaos as a seminal fluid like uh, the Logoi spermatikoi that impregnates the womb of darkness of chaos as the female aspect in the duality. And the light is the male aspect in the duality. And those two give birth to creation. Um, you can see in this slide, I hope, uh, Jesus imposed upon the serpent in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, providing gnosis knowledge to Adam and Eve. And that becomes a positive figure in Gnosticism, because gnosis is the only way that Adam and Eve can recombine as the original androgyne that Adam initially was. Eve is not a unique individual. She is the female aspect of Adam. And Adam is only complete and balanced when he becomes 
a androgyne being and is both male and female. And that's uh, one of the predominant themes within Gnosticism is that Adam and Eve were created in the image of the gods and the gods are all androgynes. So Adam was therefore created as an androgyne and he was then separated into Adam and Eve, which was a catastrophe. And the gnosis that the serpent provides to Adam and Eve, Yahweh, the evil demiurge, tried to withhold from Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are in a constant struggle and humanity is in a constant struggle with Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is called Yatabaoth in uh, Gnosticism, to try to gain the knowledge that they need to free their souls from the material world of chaos so that their souls can rise up to the one which initially emanated them as divine sparks of light, and also so that they can gain the knowledge through science and technology into how to turn their progeny, uh, their descendants, into immortal androgynes. And the catastrophe of separating the polarity of male and female, the commingling of light and darkness, produced death. The Judaists always viewed knowledge as a curse, which is why um, Jews largely shunned science, technology, and art until Moses Mendelssohn created the Jewish Enlightenment in the 1700s and the Haskalah Jewish movement to try to um, encourage young Jewish students to pursue the arts and sciences. And once they began that, they flourished and uh, largely took over in many professional fields. But until that point, Jews had traditionally considered it chutzpah and dangerous to engage in the pursuit of knowledge because they believed that the tree of knowledge and good and evil bore unripe fruit. And this unripe fruit would only become ripe at the end of 6,000 years from the creation of Adam, at which point the fruit would become ripe and kosher for Jews to eat. And then it would provide the knowledge that they would require in order to convert human beings back into androgynes who would be immortal. Another one of the curses other than death was childbirth. And when the two genders were fabricated out of the androgyne Adam into Adam and Eve, Eve was cursed with menstruation and the pains of childbirth. And Adam and Eve were burdened with working the fields to produce their own food and with raising children. And those were also viewed as curses, which the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil would eventually cure. The poison would become the cure, as Paracelsus said. So this 6,000-year process, from the Judaic perspective, is one in which the tree of the knowledge of good and evil bears fruit that must become ripe. And until that fruit is ripened, it is poisonous. It produces nuclear bombs, biological warfare, things which kill off humanity. So it is a curse but it is a curse that was placed on Esau and on Cain, not on Seth and Abel, and not on Jacob, who represents the Israelites. So it is a curse of the non-Israelites, but it is a necessary curse, because the non-Israelites were given the creativeness of Satan 
and the knowledge of Satan, which they, as the tenders of the garden of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, evolve and develop into the ripened fruit, which ultimately becomes kosher. And Jesus is initially Satan, but Jesus himself ripens as chaos gains force over light and order. From the Judaic perspective, it was a calamity when the light entered into the universe and imposed law and order on chaos, which was an older and higher emanation from the one than light. Chaos is the firstborn, just as Cain was the firstborn of Satan and Eve, and um, Esau was the firstborn, and Ishmael were the firstborn. All of these signify chaos, which is older than order and light, which is more intellectual, more rational, and freer. So chaos in most ancient religions was viewed as being in a struggle against order and light. And through entropy in this 6,000-year period, chaos absorbs the light and destroys order and frees itself from order and Yahweh's law which is also what the Judaists pursue. They want to break free from the Torah and the law and enter into the oral law of Kabbalah. And at that point, they will then be able to slay Yahweh and eliminate the Torah because the law and order will be fulfilled. Chaos will become free and the darkness will, quote, shine. So they are waiting for the eighth day of creation when darkness begins to shine. And that is what the eighth candle of the Hanukkah menorah, as opposed to the temple menorah, represents. So it's very important to understand that the cross is a symbol of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That symbol appeared earlier in the story of Moses and the brazen serpent, where Nahushtan was hung upon an Asherah pole, which is also representative of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And he became the cure for the poison, the poison of the asps and snakes that were biting the Israelites as their punishment. And a higher serpent had to become the cure for that same poison. So this whole concept is the idea that knowledge ripens, the fruit of the tree of knowledge ripens, and then the poison becomes the cure, which is kosher to consume. So Jesus is that serpent. Jesus is offering knowledge to the male and the female. Jesus is instructing the male and the female that they were originally androgynes, and they have to return to the androgynous state, and that they can utilize science and technology to once again become androgynes. And right on schedule at the end of the 6,000 years, we now have the technology to breed androgynous, and it is increasingly looking like immortal uh, embryos. And they are working on that very fervently in Israel. And I have uh, many of the books which cite the articles in which that technology is being developed. Jesus has within him this dualism. According to the Kabbalists, Jesus is both evil and good. Um, he is the serpent of darkness who bears the highest soul of Yechida Mashiach, 
which is the soul of chaos, the soul of Satan. The Messiah, son of David, has the body of the serpent of light. Those two must combine in the end. So Jesus had to perish and give up his soul so that that soul could enter into the body of Messiah, son of David, and create the unified Messiah, Messiah, son of David, who will rule after the 6,000 years in the messianic era of peace when the non-Israelites have been eliminated. The name for Yahweh is spelled yod heh vav which is the Tetragrammaton. The famous Christian Kabbalist, Pico della Mirandola, added the letter Shin in the middle to represent Shekinah, the female aspect of Yahweh, so that Jesus becomes the androgynous son who bears the female aspect of his mother and the male aspect of his father. So the son figure in Greek mythology, in the Orphic myth of Phanes Protogenes, and in the Judaic mythologies of Jesus Christ and later Adam Kadmon, is androgynous. He represents the combination of Adam and Eve back into the androgyne Adam and contains within him all of the 600,000 souls of the original Israelites. yod vav then becomes yod shin vav which is the pentagrammaton, and it has five letters as opposed to four. And that represents, again, the combination of Yahweh and Shekinah, Yahweh's female aspect, into one androgynous being. But Jesus is also the reincarnation of the soul of Cain and the soul of Esau, according to Isaac Luria. And that's stated in Gates of Reincarnation, which was written by Chaim Vital, who recorded Luria's beliefs on Gegul, on reincarnation in Judaism. So Jesus has an evil aspect to his soul because evil has not yet become ripe and triumphed over good. In Judaic uh, dualism, good is considered, uh, evil is also considered good because it accomplishes good. So when the pentagrammaton is rotated and turned upside down, it becomes the Leviathan, it becomes Satan, Lameth Vav Yod Tav Nun, which is Hebrew for Leviathan. So Jesus is initially uh, an evil figure who has entered into the prison of the nations of the non-Israelites. His mission is to mislead them and ultimately to return as the Antichrist and slay all Christians. And that is proven in the Apocalypse of Abraham, which forecasts that, and in the uh, Gospel of Judas, which also forecasts that, and which says that the disciples of Christ are sent in to mislead and deceive the Christians. And ultimately, the Christians will be punished for their anti-Semitism towards the Jews throughout the age of Pisces, as well apostate Jews who succumb to the temptation of Satan. The roles that Satan plays in Judaism are tempter, accuser, prosecutor, and punisher. 
Jesus fulfilled all of those roles. He accused the high priests of the temple. He sought to have Christians punish Jews for their breaking from God. He initiated the diaspora and the exile by forecasting the destruction of the temple and the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel that the Jews would be sent into exile. So he performed all of those satanic roles of accuser, prosecutor, and punisher. All of that relates very strongly to the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, two goats are sacrificed. One is sacrificed into the wilderness, which is the mansion of Satan. That goat is given to Satan because Satan is the prosecutor. The goat confuses Satan, and Satan flips when given the goat from being the prosecutor of Israel to becoming the advocate of Israel. The other goat is sacrificed within the sanctuary of the temple. That goat is given to Yahweh. And another reason why the scapegoat is given to the devil is because the devil exists in the astral plane in the sublunar region between the earth and the moon and interferes with the prayers and the sacrifices of the Israelites. So when the Israelites provide the scapegoat to Satan, Satan becomes confused and distracted with the scapegoat and does not interfere with the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of the goat given to Yahweh. And that's why two uh, goats are scapegoat and the um, sin offering goat are offered up on the Day of Atonement. That is explained in the Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer and in the Zohar. Okay, if you guys have any questions, please uh, pose them. If not, I'll move on to my next set of slides. Yeah, I've got a question. Um, the uh, where um, where else can we find the interpretations, or what sources uh, did you take the interpretations of? Uh, you know the the actions that you've just described. Uh, the primary source is in the Zohar, um, Vayikra three. I think it is folio. 101. I thought I had made a note of that precise citation. Um, I can look it up if you'd like. Would you like yeah, to okay. do that? No, that's okay. We don't have to do that now. It's also um, in the Pirkei uh, Rabbi Eliezer. Okay. I was just wondering, you know, um, in what and realms? the Targum Jonathan. Targum okay. Jonathan was one of the uh, initial ones. It's most fully developed in the Zohar, and I have uh, the precise quotes within my books. Okay. Um, what about the Tree of Life? Um, I didn't hear you mention the Tree of Life. Great question. That is a, a big part of the dualism that I'm talking about. There are two trees. The Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil is referred to as the Tree of the Death, the Tree of Death in the Zohar. And it is juxtaposed to the tree of life. And you'll often see in uh, Kabbalistic iconography, the two trees are represented by the crown of the tree and the roots of the tree. And they are combined in the middle of the trunk 
which represents the bottom of the Sephirotic tree of life, Malkut, the kingdom, which arrives on the seventh day of the six days of creation, the seventh, the uh, seventh millennium, the messianic era. In Kabbalistic um, iconography, the tree is upside down. The roots are in the sky, absorbing the daylight, and the crown of the tree, the tree of death, is actually buried in the dung heap of the earth and draws its nourishment from the chaos of the material world. Eventually, as the light is absorbed into the darkness and the darkness begins to shine, the two trees rotate like an hourglass. And the root structure is then properly placed underneath. And the crown of the tree, the evil 10 caliphotic vessels, as opposed to sephirotic vessels, rise up to become the higher tree. And the tree of death dominates. And that is when Satan takes over from Yahweh as master of the universe. And this is anticipated in the cosmology of almost all the ancient religions, that the cosmic cycle ends with the victory of chaos, and that the signs of this triumph over chaos is when families turn against themselves, as Matthew describes in chapter 24, and as the Talmud describes, and as uh, the prophets in the Hadiths of Islam describe. All of this is originally derived, not originally, but derived from Hesiod's concept of the metallic ages. It begins with the golden age when the light first permeates the universe and gives ideal order and nature provides everything for human beings. That gives way to the silver age as chaos starts to fight back against order and begins to triumph. And then you have cities and human beings employing agriculture and metallurgy to overcome nature. But this becomes a curse to them because they no longer have everything provided to them as they uh, start to destroy nature and pave over nature with cities. So the intellect starts to create a non-divine order. That gives way to the Bronze Age the Bronze Age becomes increasingly militaristic, where you have bronze armor and you have bronze weapons employed for men to slaughter men. So life becomes increasingly difficult. Men become increasingly tethered to cities and to agriculture, which are the curse of knowledge, which has not yet become ripe. That gives way to the heroes who battle within these wars, and the age of heroes then ends and culminates with the Iron Age, when iron and steel provide weapons which are massively destructive. Brother turns against brother, father against son, son against father. All of this was predicted by the Greeks, and it was welcomed by the Christians as um, the fulfillment of the age and the fulfillment of the law when Christ will return as the Antichrist, slay all the pagan heathens, and rule a messianic kingdom from Jerusalem in the heavenly Jerusalem, when the earth rises to heaven as above, so below. So this process of chaos, overwhelming order, 
was anticipated by most all of the ancient religions. And in this sense, the Judeus uh, were not unique. What was unique about their set of religious concepts is that they were cheering this on. They wanted Satan to win so that they could be freed from Yahweh. They viewed Yahweh as a cacodemon who imposed irrational order and irrational law on them and perpetually cursed them to extermination if they did not obey Yahweh. And throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous verses which describe how the Israelites rejected Yahweh. They did not want a God that they had to fear. They wanted a God that they could love, and that God was the queen of heaven, who is Satan. She is the female aspect, the womb of chaos, the beauty of freedom. So the Israelites were perpetually opposed to Yahweh, but they pretended to worship Yahweh so that he would pass over them without doing harm. And this was very typical. Again, this was in no sense unique to the Jews or the Judeas. The Greeks had the Mithraic cacodemon Aramanius. They would give sacrifices to Aramanius so that he would do no harm to them, but would instead harm their enemies and pass over them so that he would not fulfill his curses on them, but instead on their enemies. The Romans had uh, a very similar god called Bejovus, who was the opposite of Jove. He was a cacodemon. And before they would go into battle, they would sacrifice three black sheep to Vejovus. They would utter a prayer very similar to the prayer in Deuteronomy 1.27, where they would offer it to Mother Earth and the gods in heaven. And they would pray to Jove that he do no harm to the Romans because they loved Vejovus. Not They would pray to Jove, the good God, and they would pray to Vejovus so they would have both sides on their side. And they would pray to Vejovus, offer him three black sheep as a sacrifice, and then send him as a curse on their enemies to destroy their enemies in battle. So they would cleverly utilize both sets of gods in their favor so that the evil gods would pass over them and the good gods would also benefit them. The Jews did the exact same thing on Yom Kippur by offering a scapegoat to Satan so that Satan would pass over them and blame their enemies for their sins and help them destroy their enemies. And they offered a goat to Yahweh so that the benevolent God who chose them would also benefit them. But in the oral tradition, which was manifested first in Gnosticism, the Gnostics were the first to write down the precepts of the oral tradition, which is largely based on Platonism and uh, Orphic mythology, they recognized the fact that Yahweh was also a cacodemon. He was an evil god of the material world that was perpetually cursing the Israelites and humanity to death. And that ultimately, when the law was fulfilled and chaos triumphed over order, the darkness would shine, Satan would triumph, Jesus would provide the ripe knowledge which would enable human beings to free the divine sparks of their soul from the corpse of flesh in the material world so that it could rise to an ecstatic reunion with the one which first emanated that light. It's not a lot of good choices there, Chris. Do you see any of that? Says Yahweh is no. <laughs> what are we going to do? That is why the um, Neoplatonists rejected Christianity. 
because um, the Gnostics portrayed the Demiurge as a negative figure, and they viewed the Demiurge as a positive figure. But the from the Judaic perspective, as I understand it, the good thing is that at the end of this 6,000 years, the gardeners of the tree of knowledge, who are the Gentiles, will have ripened knowledge to the point where robots will replace slaves, where laboratories can produce wombs that can produce immortal androgynes, so that human beings will become androgynous, no longer have to suffer finding their ideal mate, bearing children, and suffering death and being reincarnated to perfect their souls because their souls will become perfect. The gods who are essentially egregores in Judaism, the real hardcore occult Kabbalah, the gods only exist because we create them in our imaginations and we believe in them. At the end of the 6,000 years, the Jews will stop believing in the gods and will themselves become the gods. And that, from their perspective, is the ultimate peak, uh, beautiful end to all this that they foresee is that they will eventually get rid of the cacodemon Satan and the cacodemon Yahweh and themselves become gods. And in the sense, they believe they are already becoming gods because through their will, they can mold chaos. And that's what the gods do. The gods utilize their intellect to create in their imagination images of what they will to be and then those images become real within chaos. So they impose the order of their will upon chaos and thereby become gods. So that for them is uh, the happy ending to the story. This sounds like the plot of Doctor Strange. <laughs> Where it goes, uh, the Dormammu, right? And he was gathering all the worlds and it was chaotic and they wanted to harness and they thought they were going to get, you know, be uh, be treated well by Dormammu, but uh, turned out... It's how, actually how, the story of Satan. Satan is the fallen angel. Yeah. He wanted to create a world of his own to supersede Yahweh's world. He was given the material world of the earth as opposed to the angels, he was given the human beings. The human beings become his army. He seeks to usurp the throne of Yahweh and um, create his own world in which his will becomes preeminent over chaos and provides the order that his imagination thinks will be rational and perfect. And he points to the fact that Yahweh's creation is very irrational, very chaotic and very unhappy. And he believes that he can create a happier, freer world. So from that mythology of Satan, you then take it one step further and you have human beings building the Tower of Babel and consuming the knowledge of the tree and good and evil given to them by Prometheus in the Greek myths and given to the Atlanteans in the Platonic myths so that they can utilize knowledge and pursue the same goals of Satan, of climbing the Tower of Babel, slaying the gods in the heavens, um, as Zeus uh, castrated Uranus and ascended to Mount Olympus with the Olympian gods, the human beings will ascend to Mount Olympus and themselves become gods. So um, none of this was new, none of this was out of the ordinary when it was created. The Greeks would have very much understood what I'm talking about, the Romans would very much have understood what I'm talking about. 
they would have seen the Jew, what the uh, Jews were planning, not as something bizarre, but as something natural and the rational conclusions of their religious beliefs. And that is what the story of the Tower of Babel is all about. That is how it was described by Manasseh ben Israel and um, the Talmudists and the Zoharites. It was humanity combining to utilize its knowledge to utilize science and technology to ascend to the heavens and slay the gods and then take their place. And that is the ultimate goal of Kabbalah. To stop the um, Shevetai Tsevi said, stop believing in God, stop worshiping the Torah, and God and the Torah will disappear. And we will be free and we will become masters of chaos. And then we can utilize our intellect to impose our will on chaos to give it the order that we seek in which we will be free and in which uh, we will be immortal and we will be knowledgeable, all the things that Yahweh tried to keep us from being. And we will get rid of this demon Yahweh who's forever cursing us to death if we don't bow down and worship him. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What about the so Gentiles, though? We're, we're, the Gentiles are going to be in trouble because they'll ascend, they'll become gods, and the rest of us are just going to be a new, a new uh, hedge on, you know, hegemony, right? <laughs> the rest of us will cease to exist. That oh, is wipe us the, out. Yes, it that say, is. Beware the world to come, man. Oh, yeah, it say, <laughs> enjoy the world to come, man. Yeah, so, no. Well, that's what it's all about. That's what the uh, plans that were established by the Alexandrian Jews um, in the third century in Alexandria, Egypt, were all about. And that, again, was typical of ancient peoples. The Greeks wanted to take over the world and essentially did. Um, the Egyptians had taken over an empire from the Nile to the Euphrates. And the Israelites said, screw you, Egyptians. We're going to take your gods and we're going to take your empire and we're going to rule from the Nile and the Euphrates. We're going to get rid of all our enemies. The only way to ensure that their satanic seed does not mix with the holy seed is to get rid of them. Otherwise, they are going to forever tempt us to worship their evil pagan gods, and they are going to breed with us and pollute our holy seed. So the rational thing for us to do is to trick them into worshiping Satan, who will ultimately kill them off as the Antichrist. And that was the plan of Gnosticism and Christianity. The original Gnostics were taught to stop having children, to shun wealth, to abort all their fetuses and consume them, to consume menstrual waste and semen as possessing the divine essence, to view the material world as evil and to shun it, to view death as life and to shun life in the material world. So it was a trap. It was a setup so that they would exterminate themselves. And then um, this became less and less popular for obvious reasons, and Orthodox Christianity replaced it. But as Albert Pike uh, revealed in Morals and Dogma, Orthodox Christianity became a secret society 
and the secrets of that society were never taught to Gentiles. And he quotes many passages from the original church fathers, which reveal these facts. And they uh, knew all the secrets of the mystery religion of Gnosticism and never shared them with their congregants. Well, that was the polemic view of uh, by the early church fathers of the Gnostics, right? About, you know, that they ate their fetuses and the kind of more disgusting stuff. I'm sure some of the Gnostics believed in not having children in this world. That makes sense. But I'm not sure. That all may of them well did. be. That argument has been made by many scholars. Um, I don't agree with it. I think that those beliefs uh, were actually true because many of the things in the um, attacks of the early church fathers in which they described the early Gnostic writings have since been vindicated by the findings of the Nag Hammadi and um, the Qumran scrolls, etc., where they very accurately portrayed what it was that was said in those ancient texts. Which, And again, I'm not disputing the fact that there are scholars who disagree with me and agree with what you just said, but I believe that as we find more and more of these documents, it will verify the uh, allegations made against the early Gnostics, as it has done in every instance in which we have found the original text, um, the church fathers like Hippolytus, Tertullian, Origen, completely accurately portrayed what, exactly what those texts said in very insightful and very fair ways. All right. I'd like to ask, yeah. ask a quick question, if I may. Um, the thing about multiple interpretations out there of scriptures is that, that in itself is chaos. So what you're saying, how much of it would you say is actually literal? How much would you say is figurative? Or are you intertwining uh, based on what your research has uh, summed up? That's a great question. The way that I arrive at my conclusions is through interpolation and a historical critical method like Mach used in his histories of science to how these syncretic religions evolved. So what I have done is gone back to the original Orphic, Eleusinian, Samothracian mystery religions, how they became Platonism and utilized Platonism, Middle Platonism, and Neoplatonism to interpret what Philo Eudaeus did when he Hellenized the Septuagint, which I believe originally incorporated Platonic ideas. And I utilized that to interpret what it is that the Gnostics were saying. And then I utilized both what the Gnostics were saying and what the Neoplatonists were saying to interpret what the Kabbalists are saying. And it enables me to see very clearly exactly what they're saying, much more clearly than if I had simply looked at what the Kabbalists say, because the Kabbalists deliberately mystify what they say in order to keep it concealed. But once you come to understand what the Orphic said, what Plato said, what the Middle Platonists and the Neoplatonists and the Platonic Academy immediately after Plato said, Kabbalah becomes crystal clear you can immediately understand what they're talking about when they refer to tohu, which is chaos, being the Gentiles, when they refer to the sitra achra, which is the universe of the other side, which is the material universe of the Gentiles and chaos. All of that becomes crystal clear when you understand Neoplatonism, Platonism, and the Orphic mystery religions and Gnosticism. All of these are also emanation theories. So, um, Isaac Luria's supposedly breakthrough concept 
of light from the urine self penetrating into the tsimsum contraction into the kahal, which was the initial sephirotic sphere of that contraction. All of that is pure Platonism, the emanation of the one into material chaos. So that is the method that I use to try to order and understand um, what the religions are ultimately talking about. And I feel vindicated in that um, methodology by the fact that when I study what the rabbis today are saying, it's in complete agreement with what I've been saying for years now. And the rabbis are saying that Jesus Christ was Satan. Jesus Christ is Messiah, son of Joseph. Jesus Christ will return as the Antichrist. Jesus Christ will destroy the Christians and become the advocate of the Jews, just as Satan does on the day of Yom Kippur in exchange for the gift of the scapegoat. And I'm going to provide proof of that in the slides, which I will uh, present. Let's do it. Okay. Um, This relates more to my books, uh, Satanic Secrets of Jesus Christ and Beware the World to Come, but it um, validates what I developed as my thesis in Beware the World to Come. So can you see my screen? Oh, one second. Not yet. There you go. Okay. So Jesus is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a grapevine. His blood is the juice of that vine, which is grape juice turned into wine. He offered up that unripe poisonous fruit as the Eucharist with which to poison Christians. He poured that Eucharist into the cup of God's wrath, which is the Holy Grail, which is referred to in Jeremiah as the cup of God's wrath. Um, that was represented in many legends of St. John as the toxic uh, poisonous wine that was offered to him. It is symbolic of the wine that Jesus offered to John the Evangelist as the Eucharist. John the Evangelist removed the poisonous serpent from the wine. Jesus is the God of the wine press. He, quote unquote, treads the wine press. That was a prophesied figure in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, that there would be this murderous, tyrannical figure who would represent the Jews and trample over all the people of Edom, which are the Gentiles. That is symbolized by trampling on the grapes in the winepress, which stains one's clothes blood red. So the prophecy of Isaiah talks about this messianic figure, Messiah, son of Joseph, coming to trample over the Gentiles, and his clothes will be stained blood red. Jesus wore a blood red robe to uh, symbolize the fact that he treads the winepress. This uh, symbology uh, pervades throughout the Christian era. You can see that the cross was always represented as a grapevine because it, is, because it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is the serpent in that tree, offering gnosis, the fruit of knowledge. Again, I'll just show these slides so you can examine the fact that throughout the Christian tradition, Jesus is portrayed trampling the wine press. And I'm going to explain that this tradition emerged from Egyptian mythology and that those bunches of grapes represent bunches of human heads. 
there was an Egyptian god, Shesmu, who would trample over human heads and make wine out of the blood of human beings to serve up to his master god, Yunus. Yunus represents Yahweh. Shesmu is Jesus Christ. The angels gather that blood in order to offer it up to Yahweh as his food. He consumes the energy of human souls in order to strengthen himself. And the food of the gods is the blood of human beings. Christians are told to bear their own cross and be like Jesus. So all Gentiles who become Christians and all apostate Jews who have succumbed to the temptation of the devil offer up their blood and their souls to the angels who then provide it to Yahweh. Again, that is a common portrayal that the blood is gathered up, and these are symbols of the angels gathering the blood to offer it to Yahweh. Okay, and now I'm going to introduce you to the Egyptian god Shesmu. There was uh, an Egyptian god, Unas, who was the master god. This is the oldest Egyptian god from the oldest Egyptian dynasty that we have records of. This god hated all the other gods and would slay all the other gods like jealous Yahweh. Unas had a servant named Shesmu. Shesmu was the one who would actually kill the other gods. Shesmu would cook them up make wine out of their blood and give it to Unas to consume so that he could fill his belly with the magical power of the other gods. The Egyptians believed in the principle as above, so below. When you slay the gods of other peoples, they lose their supernatural protection. So when Jesus Christ goes around and kills and usurps all the pagan gods, the pagans lose their supernatural protection as the gods die above, the pagans die below. So it is actually a process of extermination to eliminate the gods of other peoples. Again, that was a common practice in the ancient world where syncretic religions emerged. When nations would lose wars, they would abandon their gods and adopt the gods of the victors, thinking that those gods were stronger and better and could better protect them. Sounds this, like chaos to me. <laughs> It's all about chaos. Chaos is the one they want to win, ultimately, and the one they expect to win. And they resent the Gentiles because the Gentiles are the firstborn. So therefore, the Gentiles represent chaos. So they have to assimilate the souls of the Gentiles, just as Jacob stole the birthright of Esau. The secondborn has to take the soul of the firstborn or else he will perish because the firstborn um, in Judaism and in all the ancient religions, inherits a double portion of the birthright of his father. So they believe that uh, the firstborn are the Gentiles, that they will receive the double portion of the present world and the world to come unless they are killed and their souls are taken. So what uh, Jacob did was he tricked Esau into giving up his birthright for a bowl of blood red lentil soup and he then took over his soul. So he became the firstborn by default because Esau is killed off. Jacob then becomes the firstborn and inherits the double portion of the father of the one 
to the present world, olam hazeh, and the world to come, olam haba. So that is the process of tikkun olam, repairing the world, is the process of removing the Gentiles so that their souls can be taken over by the Jews, just as Messiah, son of David, will take over the soul of Jesus Christ, and they will then assume the soul, the highest soul, Yehidah the Mashiach, which is the soul of Satan, and they will become, in the end of the cycle, the masters over chaos. But the way that uh, Judaism differs from the Greek, the Egyptian, and the Sumerian religions is that they then want to break the cosmic cycle because they will then become the gods. There will be no new emanation of daylight and the moonlight, the shining darkness will reign forever. So they will be immortal gods forever who will never die and will gain absolute control over chaos forever and break the cosmic cycle. So this is the god Shesmu on a boat. He again uh, is the butcher who slaughters the dead and feeds them to the master god Unas. He tramples the wine press and makes wine out of the blood of human beings and gods to give to um, Unas. Uh, these stories um, are told in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. You can see that the hieroglyph for Shesmu contains a symbol of the wine press. Uh, one of the forms of the Egyptian wine press was a canvas bag where they would throw the uh, bunches of grapes into it after having trampled on them with their feet. And then they would twist it like you bring out a towel. And that would extract the last bit of the grape juice. And that is part of the hieroglyph for Shesmu's name. This is an article that people can pause the video and read, which um, describes Shesmu as the god who uh, treads the wine press, offers wine to the dead, and gives the wine to his master god, Unas. And another thing is Shesmu is the god of perfume and anointing oils. Jesus was anointed with perfume by Mary Magdalene, and it, the symbology is that death then obtains a sweet smell. The same is true when uh, the stone was removed before Jesus's tomb. They were worried that there would be a rotten stink coming out of it because he'd been dead for three days, but uh, there was no rotten smell. So Jesus is the divine perfumer, Shesmu, who takes away the bad smell of death and provides the anointing oil to corpses, which renders their flesh immortal in the uh, Egyptian process of mummification. Uh, this is the Book of the Dead that again goes into uh, this cosmic struggle between order and the serpent Apep. Every night the sun descends to the netherworld, the god Ra battles with the serpent of darkness, Apep, and defeats darkness so that the dawn creates a new world of creation every morning. And from that, uh, the Jews took on the concept of the evil serpent and the holy serpent of light battling with each other, but ultimately they become one, like the two serpents round, wound the staff of the caduceus. Here again, you can see uh, the name Shesmu appears as the wine press in the hieroglyphics. Um, 
The cannibal hymn from the pyramid text tells the fullest story of Shesmu and Unas. Here, Unas is called Wainus. That's just the transliteration of the hieroglyphs in a different era. It is called the cannibal hymn because the gods Unas and Shesmu are cannibals who kill off all the other gods, just as Jesus and Yahweh are cannibal gods who kill off all the other gods. They are jealous gods who slay all the other gods and slay the Gentiles. Shesmu would also slay human beings who oppose the gods and feed their souls to Unas. So Jesus, the wine trust spreading god, is uh, patterned after this Egyptian god, Shesmu, and he is a cannibal. And Christians are taught to mimic the cannibal Jesus by drinking his blood, just as Unas drinks the blood that Shesmu provides to him, and to eat Jesus's flesh, just as Unas eats the flesh of the gods and human beings that Shesmu butchers and feeds to him. So Christianity is patterned after that, and then Christians are patterned after their gods and repeat, mimic the same processes that the gods undertook to gain magical powers and immortality. Um, there are also useful uh, commentary and notes in this article, which translates the cannibal hymn. Again, anyone who's interested in this can pause the video and read through it. That is Shesmu with his knives, where he would, which he would utilize to slay the gods and human beings and butcher them up and cook them in uh, tremendous pots. This is Isaiah 63 which talks about this Jesus figure to come who treads the winepress. Um, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed to come. This is when Jesus returns as the Antichrist, as forecast in the book of Revelations, as the winepress treading God. You can um, see that in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses, um, let's see here. Yeah, I think it's chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, and chapter... 19 verses 11 to 16. It talks again about Jesus uh, treading the winepress. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Um, again in Revelations, and the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So Jesus will come back and spill oceans of blood. The blood that he will spill will be the non-Israelites and apostate Jews. And again, this was forecast in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Judas and the Apocalypse of Abraham. 
Shin is the first letter in Shekinah or Shekinah. It is composed of three letter vavs. The letter vav in Hebrew represents the number six. So uh, Shin represents the mark of the beast, 666. Um, this is well known to Kabbalists. They don't see that in a negative light. They simply see uh, Shekinah, the queen of heaven, the goddess Asherah, as the divine goddess of chaos, uh, whom they adore and who followed them throughout the exile when Yahweh had abandoned them. In Hebrew, gematria, the word for Messiah is Mashiach. The uh, letters of the word Mashiach add up to 358. The word Nachash is the word for serpent or snake. It also adds up to 358. So the Messiah is the serpent. And the letter Shin, again, is made up of three vavs. There is a yod at the base, and the head of each of the vavs is a yod. And when you add up all of those numbers, it adds up to 358, which is Mashiach and Nachash, the Messiah and the serpent of darkness. The letter Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is composed of a yod above, which is the holy serpent, Adonai, Yahweh. It is also composed of the yod below, which is Adam, the evil serpent. And it is divided by the great abyss of the slanted vav of the unified serpent. This is not my understanding of the letter. This is a standard Kabbalistic um, interpretation of the letter Aleph which you can find in YouTube videos from Chabad Lubavitch rabbis explaining um, what the letter uh, Aleph represents in Kabbalah. The Star of David is composed of two triangles pointed upwards and downwards. This goes all the way back to Hindu mythology. The triangle pointing upward represents the phallus, which emits the uh, seminal fluid of light. The triangle pointed downward assumes the form of the womb of chaos. The phallus penetrates the womb, emits light into the darkness of the womb to give birth to creation. This same imagery is found in the pentagrammaton, uh, Yeshua, uh, yod heh vav -Heh with a shin in the middle. And you can see that the positive light of the male image points upward. The negative shining darkness of the female womb of chaos points downward. Man is composed of the androgyne Adam and Eve. Satan is composed of the androgyne Samael Lilith. Samael is the male aspect. Lilith is the female aspect. Um, these are dark reflections of the Jewish universe, the Sitri Yamina, the right hand side. In the Jewish universe, um, Yahweh is divided into the male aspect, Yahweh, and the female aspect, Shekinah. Uh, this demonstrates the tree of knowledge of good and evil is also represented as a fig tree, and Jesus is represented as a grapevine, which is the serpent ascending the fig tree. The fig tree is also an Asherah pole, which is also the tree of knowledge of good and evil.
third Baruch uh, states that it was Samael, the devil, who planted the tree of knowledge in the garden. I pray thee, show me where is the tree which led Adam astray. And the angel said to me, it is the vine which the angel Samael, that is Satan, planted. Whereat the Lord God was angry, he cursed him and his plant. Well, also on this account, he did not permit Adam to touch it. So in uh, contemporary works, it also states this in the Apocalypse of Abraham, it was understood by the Gnostics and the first Christians that when they portrayed um, the cross and Jesus as the grapevine, they were portraying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was planted by the devil. It was later replanted after the flood when all the Garden of Eden of the earth had been destroyed by Noah. Noah planted a vineyard and replanted evil into the world. So Noah in Kabbalah is understood as a satanic figure who, like Samael, replanted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil into the world. He became drunk on the wine of his vineyard and his son um, Ham sodomized and castrated him, just as Yahweh castrates Samael. And this is explained very thoroughly in a major chapter of the Zohar. This is the Kabbalist explanation of Jesus as the devil and Samael uh, in the Sefer HaMashiv, which was a 15th century Spanish Kabbalistic text, which revealed the oral tradition's uh, belief that Jesus Christ was the devil or Samael. This belief was earlier stated by the Spanish Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia, who specifically stated that Jesus Christ was Samael, the devil, and the Messiah, son of Joseph. So this is proof. And I wasn't aware of this when I arrived at the conclusion that Jesus was the devil, but I dug this up later, which vindicated my belief that Jesus is the devil, was always perceived as the devil, was called the devil in the New Testament by the Jews of his era who shunned him and said that he was uh, possessed by Beelzebub, that he cured people of demons because he was the priest of the prince of demons. And um, Jesus is one of the reincarnations of Samael. Um, he is also reincarnated from Esau and Cain. He comes back as Armalus, who is the Antichrist. And he comes back also as Gog and Magog in the final war as the Antichrist, in which all the Gentiles are exterminated. So my interpretation is uh, completely in agreement with the interpretation of Kabbalah. Um, Moshe Edel is a foremost Israeli scholar in Jerusalem, working at a university in Jerusalem. Um, I don't know if you can see the full citation or not. I can't because it says you are screen sharing, but there's a citation to it. You can find a PDF of this online if you search for uh, the title and quotes on Google, or you search for Moshe Edel and some of the text in quotes, you'll find the PDF. It's quite worth reading, and you will see again that um, Jesus is Messiah, son of Joseph, and Jesus is the devil, Samael. Here is more from the article. 
referring to other passages in the Sefer HaMashiv and the Sefer HaKetaret. Again, um, another important thing for people to realize is that in Judaism, Samael, the devil, is the guardian angel of the Gentiles who betrays them, and he's the angel that wrestled with Jacob. So uh, he has the power to betray the Gentiles because he is their guardian angel. And that is why he is Jesus, because Jesus becomes the guardian angel of the Christians who betrays them and slaughters them as the Antichrist in the end. Um, here is a quote from the book by Robert Segerman, The Serpent Kills or The Serpent Gives Life, where it states that... Um, Messiah and the body of Satan is one ruler and subject, which in Abulafia's opinion expresses the relation between the Jewish Messiah and Jesus. Um, Idel observes that the two passages he examines, Satan and Jesus, occupy the same positions. So again, uh, the very important Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia, who created ecstatic Kabbalah, and who created the idea that um, Hebrew is a divine language and that you can speak to God directly through Hebrew and Gematria, stated that Jesus is Satan and um, the Messiah, son of Joseph. This is from another prominent rabbi, Rabbi Ariel Bartzadok. He states that Jesus uh, comes back as the Antichrist. Um, Again, you can uh, read through this. I don't know if you guys want me to read through it or not, but again, it says that Yeshu, who is Jesus, Yeshu is um, the Hebrew term for Jesus. It's an acronym, which means may his name be blotted out, which is the curse on the Amalekites and on Esau, and that uh, he is the reincarnation of Esau, Jacob's brother, and he is the reincarnation of Cain, Abel's brother. You can again find this article online, The Legend of Armelis by Rabbi Ariel Bar Sadak, who has published several books on Kabbalah. In the Gospel of Judas, it states that the disciples uh, offer up the Christians as cattle for sacrifice and lead them astray. That is the express intention. Jesus reveals this to Judas. The uh, disciples have a dream, a vision, in which they see cattle uh, sacrificed at the altar in the temple. And Jesus explains to them that that is the Christians who they are deceiving. And the Gospel of Judas uh, goes on to say that Jesus will come back, all the Christians will be annihilated, and the souls of the Israelites will be raised to heaven and rule uh, the universe. This again is the brazen serpent Nahashtan on the Asherah pole of the cross, which represents the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and the poison becoming the cure. Jesus is the same serpent as the serpent Nahashtan, and that is expressly stated in the Gospel of John, verse uh, 14 of chapter 3. Christopher, do you feel there's supernatural forces? Or you mentioned an egregore, which could just mean a psychic agreement a power between people or do you do you think there are supernatural forces above us i think the greeks 
had a very intelligent and wise understanding of the way that the cosmos operated. And they anticipated that humanity would consume itself with science and technology and that we would brutalize one another. And that um, this is by no means all Jews. This is a very, very small top echelon of those who have been let in on these ancient secrets. This tradition has been handed down as an oral tradition, never written down from rabbi to rabbi for thousands of years. And uh, nobody suffered more from it than the Jewish people themselves. And uh, I hope you're right. I hope it backfires. I hope it doesn't work out. But what I but see happening is some the of the other elite, like the Rockefellers oh, and the very the sheiks, you know, the 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 rulers of this age that want in on it. They want in on this power. Does that include the, the vast majority fall into those classes of people? But they are viewed as what is called the gardeners of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They provide the science and technology and they put it into force. The Freemasons call themselves craftsmen which is a reference to the Demiurge. And they also believe that they are the children of Samael, the descendants of Cain, and who was produced by Satan and Eve. And they have his intelligence and his craftly nature to construct and be Masonic, to be the stone masons, <clears throat> to build the temple and to construct all of this. And that there are many, many forces involved, which is why it's so important to spread this knowledge so that the people become aware of what they're doing, what its ultimate aims are, and that they have if either been seduced or hypnotized into accepting these suicidal pursuits. And I think we can beat them. But what I see happening is the world is being deliberately devolved into chaos to deliberately fulfill the predictions of the end of the Iron Age of the Greeks. Um, All of our science and technology is destroying nature to the point where that destruction will lead to our own destruction. And we are not putting in place uh, things to prevent that. In the name of green energy, they are actually destroying the energy destroying the forests and cutting them down to feed green energy power plants, as Michael Moore's documentary pointed out. So it's all being done deliberately to uh, ruin us. And we have the responsibility to save ourselves, just as the Greeks with their DNA and their genius anticipated all of this, and their beliefs have been exploited by these people. We can also utilize the wisdoms of the Greeks to save ourselves And uh, the Greeks also forecast in the Sibylline oracles and in a poem published by Virgil that there would be a son born of a virgin who would be a savior figure. And we can become our own savior figures by uh, not going along with this, by trying to persuade Christians that they are not going to obtain eternal life through death, by persuading Muslims and Christians that the destruction of the earth is not the preservation of heaven. It is uh, our ruin. And by persuading the Jews that they are also going to be victims of this elite class that is setting about not only to ruin the Gentiles, but to ruin them as well. And uh, to my Jewish friends, I suggest they consider the fact that the Yom Kippur ritual, two goats are slaughtered. Only one is given to Satan. The other is given to Yahweh, and that's the Jewish people who are going to be sacrificed to Yahweh so that Messiah, son of David, 
can breed his 600,000 immortal androgynes. And but as bizarre as it all is, and as bizarre as it all sounds, I think I've proven it. Subscribe for the full presentation. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 